I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less than perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Key Eats, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. I've had the great fortune of getting to know Dr. Nicola Guess as a friend and colleague. She has a rare combination of experiences and skills. She's trained and practices as a clinical registered dietitian, helping patients understand how their diet contributes to their health and disease. And she helps them adjust diet and nutrition to treat many conditions, including but not limited to type 2 diabetes, obesity, and other metabolic diseases. But Nicola also has a robust research experience and interest. She received her PhD in nutrition science and has spent the better part of the last decade trying to learn answers to critically important questions in the field. She's brilliant, witty, funny, and she brings much-needed levity to what can sometimes be dry and boring topics, or even controversial ones. Nicola has become a trusted friend and advisor to me, and is someone I turn to quite often when I have a difficult question or problem. She's also one of the most level-headed people who strives to find common ground where there may appear to be none. She is profoundly undogmatic and humble. I think you'll enjoy hearing about her life, her practice, her experiences, and also how she thinks about some things in a refreshingly unique way. I was basically a regular kid. None of my parents went to university. My dad kind of started out in the mailroom in the civil service and worked his way up. My mom was a secretary. I was never, ever academic at all. I think I read the first book that I read out of choice when I was like 19. My secondary school wasn't that great. I remember when I was 16 years old, for a technology exam, there was a photo of a kitchen with hazards, like, this is age 16, with a saucepan that was about to fall off kind of a cable that was loose and you had to circle the hazards. So that was the, the quality of my education at that point. And then actually, I was a waste of space until I was about 25. Not academic at all. I did nutrition as an undergrad. And I basically went to Nottingham because my best friend went there to do medicine. And I remember the career advisor saying, like, ask me a bunch of questions. And then she was like, okay, be a physio or go into nutrition. And I was like, okay, so Nottingham does nutrition, so I'll do that. So I basically went to Nottingham uh, so I could hang out with my friend Dina. The first year you have, the first year doesn't count towards your degree in England. And you have to get 40% to pass the year. I got 41. <laughs> and I mean, I, I wasn't into it at all. It's kind of amazing. And I just got super lucky and I got a 2-1. So that's like a B. And I'll tell you why that was lucky. Because I didn't even, tr- I, I mean, I, I tried towards the end. I was like, I don't want to flunk. But that came in really handy because finally later when I got myself together to get a fellowship for a PhD, you need a 2-1. And I was like, oh my God, I'm just so glad that happened because that was not part of the plan at all at the time. Then I was like, okay, I've got my degree in nutrition. I didn't want to become a dietitian. At that point, there were three places in the country that you could do it. They were all had terrible reputations. And I was like, that, that would be boring because I was 21. I was like, once I do my postgrad training to become a dietitian, that's it for the rest of my life. So I went traveling like most people do. I went to Central and South America for a year, kind of got back and I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Keep traveling. So I decided to go to the States to do my to finish off my dietetic training, ended up in Florida International University when I was 25. 
and I did a master's in public health. And I also completed the rest of my qualifications to become a dietitian. And then I, they wanted to, to keep me on in Miami to do the internship and the internships like the clinical rotations. And I, I wasn't the biggest fan of Miami after two years I'd had enough. So I kind of went back home. Once you get your undergraduate requirements for dietetics, you then have to apply for internships. I imagine it's competitive the same way that medicine is. So you, they're kind of a matching process. So I, I loved Boston. I, I still love Boston. And I applied to four schools and got rejected from all of them. And Florida International University was the only one that accepted me for the, the internship. I was like, you know, what, I'm not going to do it. So I actually moved to Madrid to work in a bar for six months. And I was like, I'll just figure out, figure something out. And again, I just got super lucky. So there was a, most internships are 12 months, some are 16 months. You know what? If I'd moved to Boston at that point, 16 months in Boston, you don't get paid to do an internship. You have to pay to do it. You get no income whatsoever. And can you imagine living in Boston for 16 months? Like, actually, that would have ruined me financially. So it turned out to be a good thing that that didn't work out. But I ended up getting into a place in Houston. And it was the best program for me because I was never interested in clinical dietetics. I, I At that point, following my master's, I was like, I want to go into research. And so they enabled me to formulate an internship over seven months that just kind of ticked to the requirements I had to do for clinical so I got that done, but basically I mostly did research. So I got to work at the Baylor College of Medicine on the look-ahead trial of all things. I worked in the Methodist Hospital on their bariatric program. And that was what led to my PhD because up until that point, this was in like 2006 and I was 26 years old, I had the kind of ignorant view of obesity that lots of people have. I just kind of thought, not just education, but I was like, maybe people don't know what the right foods are to eat that all you need to do is kind of give someone a pamphlet, let them know what's healthy and they'll be on their way. And because this was a private hospital, which I'd never seen having come from England, their bariatric program, even the medical weight management one that was the meal replacement was like $20,000. So all the people in it were lawyers, CEOs, you name it, like the most disciplined, hardworking, smart people you could imagine. And they struggled with their weight. And so a kind of an alarm bell went off in my head. And I was like, it clearly something else is happening. And so that's why I got into appetite, which is what I ended up kind of doing my PhD in. Nicola was a young recent graduate and was just beginning to see patients. Her view was that obesity was an education problem. People would succeed if they only knew what to do, what to eat, what not to eat. And yet her practice was telling her otherwise. She felt like it was not as simple as she had initially thought. And so she decided to pursue training and research aimed at understanding some of the mechanisms of what might be going on, and particularly the role of appetite on weight, and especially the role of appetite hormones. So I got my RD, I finished in Houston in seven months, and I went back to London. And then I ended up working in an NHS hospital for three months that was enlightening for many reasons. Firstly, with how terrible dietary advice is. At that point, remission was nowhere. No one had ever heard of remission. I spent three years primarily doing type 2 diabetes in an NHS hospital. And most of my job was advising people to eat a bit less carb. So it was a huge Southern Asian population. People would have three quarters of a plate of rice. And so sometimes my advice would be, okay, can you reduce it to a third? That was kind of my job. And really, that's all I was doing. And I was like, is this all that we can do for people with type 2, like the only dietary advice we have? At that time, it was think about cardiovascular disease. So think about healthy fats have whole grain rice if you can, yeah, that that was it. And not only is it monotonous, can you imagine every single day saying that? It wasn't working. And actually, I found it so monotonous and boring. I'd been there for three months and I already applied for a research grant. 
So it was a small qualitative study I did in resistance exercise, but that was the stepping stone to my PhD. And so what I ended up doing with my PhD was looking at appetite hormones. So my PhD was looking at a specific kind of carbohydrate called fermentable carbohydrate that via fermentation in the gut increases GLP-1. And so that can help people to lose weight um, and it can also improve glucose homeostasis. So that's that's what I did. I did that at Imperial College in three years and then stayed on to do a postdoc. And it was looking at um, infusing gut hormones. So GLP-1, oxyntomodulin and polypeptide and comparing that to a very low energy diet and comparing it to bariatric surgery on glucose homeostasis and obese patients with type 2. So that's what I did for, for two years. So you can see kind of what happened. I have really had not much of an intention of going into a research career and just got really lucky and that's how it, it all worked out. But very quickly, I specialised in type 2. So I never did any dietetics that was anything really but diabetes type 2. When I did my PhD, that was in pre-diabetes. My postdoc was in type 2. I also went on a couple of research trips. So I went to China and to the US. Actually, I went to um, Denver with um, Dr. Lee Perot looking into pre-diabetes. And so I never really did anything else. So I got to specialise really quick, which helps immensely. And then I went to King's College London and worked in the Department of Diabetes and Nutritional Sciences, which was a perfect fit for me, um, and spent three years there. Very briefly, GLP-1 is a hormone like estrogen or testosterone. But this hormone is made in the gut, and it has many effects on metabolism, including stimulating the production of other hormones like insulin, but also exerting effects on reducing appetite. It's currently approved as a drug to treat diabetes and obesity. So tell me the difference between someone who is a dietitian or does dietetics and somebody who's a nutritionist. Okay, yeah, that's a question that uh, is important, but I think people overplay it. So basically a dietitian is someone who has had a specific training and a very specific curriculum. And so in the UK, you can only work with with clinical conditions. You can only work in the NHS if you are an RD, that's a registered dietitian. And so you are state registered. So you also can't say certain things or you lose your license. Uh, there are ethical obligations. Yeah, so it's, it's a bit like the General Medical Council, the GMC. So we are also monitored as licensed professionals. I mean, in, in practice, so you are you are licensed every, you get randomly checked to make sure you're doing CPD, so continual professional education. So they might come along and say, okay, show us evidence that you've continued to learn and develop and so forth. But that's really the difference. The difference is about the standardization of the education and the curriculum. Who decides that? Is there some council that says, all right, well, this is, this is acceptable nutritional intervention this is an yes so there are various different bodies involved and i'm not sure i know all of the details but but yes if, if you had a university and you wanted to get a course accredited that would have to be accredited by one of these bodies so there's pretty standard stuff in there like physiology biochemistry and all that stuff um so that's that's registered dietitians with nutritionists the, the difference is there's no standard education so you now have registered nutritionists, which is a bit different. So they're trying to standardize it a bit more. But essentially, anyone can call themselves a nutritionist if they've read a book. You just go, I'm a nutritionist. But having said that, I mean, what people often, I think, overplay it, like, oh, that person's just a nutritionist, that person's a dietitian, that, you know, they're better. But I know lots of people with a PhD who are incredible nutritionists. So they, they know a ton because they care about knowing a ton and they care about being good, not that they've had a standardized education. And as we might get to later, I I, I think there are some issues with the 
education and registered dietetics that we need to work on anyway. Worldwide or just in England? or just- I mean, I, I know the UK one generally. I mean, I trained as a dietitian in the US. Um, and for example, on the exam that I had to sit, there's a lot of food service management. And so one of the questions on the exam was about how high shelves have to be in a pantry hmm. above the ground. Like, give me a break. Yeah. Like, that was, ne- And this is one of the issues is that dietetics tries to do too much. They want to train you to work in research, to work in a hospital kitchen, to develop menus for a company, to work with a patient with type 2, to work with a patient who's on intensive care. And you can't do that. It tries to do that. Um, and I think that's where we're going wrong. But yeah, like th- those questions were a waste of time for me because I never, ever had any intention at any point. Shelf. I'm like, I don't care about All the right. shit. No, wait a sec. So if, if you were a kid who went to college, say, in the United States and you wanted to do diet dietetics so you wanted to become a registered dietitian yeah you could do that as an undergrad or you have to go to graduate school to do um that? so you, you can do an undergrad program that's three years um but then there's a diploma so the diploma is basically the clinical the the rotation that's that uh, internship yeah and that's a year uh yes so different programs work different ways um typically you have three different placements they're, they're embedded i think with between year three and four and that works quite well because you're kind of learning and then you go observe in hospital and gradually you actually start independently seeing patients um but the other way of doing it if you have an undergraduate degree already that's something to do with biomedicine or related you can then do depending on the university it might be a year or a two year masters in dietetics but within that masters again you would still have all of the I think it's typically a thousand hours of practice, something like that, that you have to do. What are the different options? Like when you're looking, so for me as a medical student, I had to choose between internal medicine and surgery and dermatology and emergency yeah. medicine. Oh, so, so uh, this is, I think, a huge problem. We don't do that. Okay. So it's it's very much a lottery. So you can choose, I mean, not only what specialism you see, I mean, you don't have any control over that. You can select a placement. So there might be a public health placement, a clinical placement. You have to do a certain amount. But where you end up is completely random. There's no difference in, like, you wouldn't say, I'm going to go do training in low-carb nutrition. No. 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 It's just nutrition or dietetics. Yeah. So you might end up in a general hospital and you might see, um, go on an acute ward, a care of the elderly ward. So you're just seeing people who really you just need to build up. To me, it's almost kind of random. I think we should move to a medical model. Maybe it needs to be after people graduate with a general understanding of nutrition into more specific training. And what would be a typical, um, well, I guess let me ask you two questions. One would be, what would be a typical practice setting for an RD? And I guess the second question is, how does a patient get to you? Like, is it? So there's no typical. Okay. I mean, the, the, as an RD, you can work in a hospital, you could work in the community, you could be hired by a, a company to develop food products, you could be a sports dietitian. Um, so there's no typical. In terms of how you get referred, we have NH- dietitians working within the NHS, so they get referred via the GP. In practice, it doesn't really happen. So for example, in type 2 diabetes, there are national guidelines, NICE, which is the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, kind of has specifics about who should what access a patient should have to specialist services and part of that includes individualized advice with a dietitian which most patients don't get like they'd be very lucky if they get to see a dietitian so typically in the NHS you would see a patient with type 2 diabetes if they were quite a complicated patient they would be the only people that would really get referred but you, lo- there are loads of dietitians working freelance so lots of people via the BDA who are the British Dietetic Association they have a register so if people wanted to go see a, a dietitian privately they can so you're doing this 
training, you get a research bug, you decide you wanted to go beyond. And so then you applied to graduate school, to PhD programs? Yeah. Um, but I got a fellowship for my PhD, which, which I uh, was very fortunate. Um, that's so, the 2.1. That's the, that's the, that's yeah. the two point. Yes, yeah, seriously. Yeah. Uh, because when was this? This was in two, this was in 2010. This is 10 years after I'd got my degree by accident, essentially. Uh, that was a 2.1 and Diabetes UK, who are basically the American Diabetes Association, but the UK version have fellowships specifically for allied health professionals. So they try to encourage dietitians physios, a couple of other nurses to get into research. And it's fantastic because it pays your NHS salary because I think they recognise the impact that doing research can have on clinical practice. So they they, they have a, a real interest in training dietitians up. So I was really lucky and got that funded. But had I not got a 2-1, I wouldn't have been able to apply. What percentage of, uh, of RDs go on to do a PhD? Is it pretty rare? Um, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. But I, I think that's true of a lot of allied health professionals. Um, and I think it's a real shame because if you look at the people, I think in the UK, I mean, I'm, I'm biased because I just know that the diabetes field, but there are a couple of other people in critical care nutrition who've done PhDs. They're really changing practice. Um, and that's what we want to happen. So for example, when I started in the NHS, um, and I was in a clinic, I had 70% DNA rates. So do, do, do not attend. You have the same thing. Uh-oh, so basically this is, you 70% of people who have appointments booked don't show up. Oh. This is the NHS that's paying for this. So it's not like they're saving money. They lose money because they book me. They pay for my time. Typically, there's a translator. So when a patient doesn't show up, it costs a lot. No one cared. No one was thinking, hey, listen, we should really do a, something about the fact that 70% of patients don't turn up. I mean, never mind the fact that it's a waste of money. Does this mean patients don't want our services? If they don't want our services, why don't they want to come and see a dietitian? So there's all kind of questions that you should be asking yourself. And that's where critical thinking comes in. I mean, I think a lot of it is common sense. Going on to the clinics, when we had obesity clinics, if you said to anyone in that department, and this is true of most dietetic departments in the UK, okay, how many patients get referred to you every month? Of those, how many show up for their first appointment? Of those, how many come back? Of those, how many lose weight? How much weight? What's the A1C? Do they come off their medications? No one can tell you any of that, which is terrible because it's a waste of money. It's poor practice. Is um, there anywhere that anyone can tell you that? I mean, I'm sure there are pockets of, of departments around the UK that do, but in, in general, no. I mean, you, you've got to think about it. I mean, the NHS is enormous. And if if you kind of just get paid, this sounds awful, but it's true, just showing up every day to nine o'clock and leaving at five you sit in your clinic if the patient doesn't show it doesn't affect you uh, and I, unfortunately i think there's some real um like despondency clinical inertia there like you just I, you know i think a lot of it is dietitians not actually believing they can help patients and this is what has been game changing with tech and with what a lot of physicians are doing with remission like i'm sure we'll come on to talk about david unwin but GPs were made to collect data. So he has a data set and so do most GPs going back a long time. But what that data set can show you is this is how many patients come back. This is is what advice they're giving them roughly. This is how many medications they're coming off. Then he's costed it saying this is how many much money we're saving on medications. Like that's what dietitians should be doing. Okay, he's I, wanna, a, he's I, definitely, a GP. I definitely want to come back to that. Right. But in the meantime, let's just finish your training. So you did this PhD. You worked on gut hormones. Do you want to give like a 30 second four minute, whatever you want, description of your, of your, what you found in your PhD. Oh, my PhD. Okay. So we had, um, yeah, so, so, the, so the principle of the, the research was that people with prediabetes have a high risk of type 2 diabetes, 
we know that helping them to lose weight is going to help prevent type 2 diabetes in those people. Now, obviously, that's difficult because when people lose weight, you get adaptations in appetite hormones that basically drive hunger. So when you lose weight, the hormones that tell you you're hungry go up and the hormones that tell you you're full go down. Wait, stop, because that's important. Why is that? Um, I don't think anyone really knows, but there have been a number of studies that have looked at an energy deficit. So even if people aren't losing that much weight, over seven days if people are at an energy deficit, you can see ghrelin go up and you can see PYY, GLP-1, that are the full hormones go down. Then there were slightly longer term studies that showed, okay, when people lose a bit of weight, again, ghrelin goes up, the full hormones go down. But the kind of the seminal study that really, I think, hit home for everyone was in 2011. And it followed people up really long term. So it's for 52 weeks. So they took people with obesity. They had them lose 10 kilograms. I think it was over about 10 weeks. That's a lot of weight really quick. And what they found was that GLP-1 went up. And that's not surprising based on the previous research. And that PYY and GLP-1 both went down. That's not a surprise. But when they followed them up a year later, those um, hormonal adaptations were still there, but they'd gotten worse. And so these people are hungry. And so what this tells you is even when you put all that work in, because 10 kilograms is incredible. If I had a patient losing 10 kilograms, that's incredible. They've done all the hard work and you essentially have your body working against you. So when people are like, oh, but you just need to focus, you just need willpower, it's actual biology that's driving hunger. And this is why sustained weight loss is so hard. So the basis of using fermentable carbohydrates or a lot of fibers is that they can increase the endogenous production, particularly of the gut hormones. So it's PYY and GLP-1. So that that was the basis of my work. And then did you end up looking at hunger too? We did. And and this is this is the really challenging thing. Hunger is really difficult to measure. You can measure it using visual analog scales, which is essentially when you have like a line and you say, how hungry are you right now? And they mark with a pen somewhere along that line. But it's really subjective. And hunger means lots of different things to different people. So for someone, it might be if their stomach's rumbling, that's hunger. For other people, it's boredom and they think that's hunger. So that's a really subjective term. So what you try to do is you say, how hungry are you right now? How full do you feel right now? How much do you think you could eat right now? So you try and put lots of questions together to get a picture of it. But it's not a great way of measuring hunger. But we did see a reduction in hunger based on some of those markers. We did measure P, uh, PYY and GLP-1, and actually we didn't see the changes we expected to see. And partly, though, I think this might be because assays to measure this stuff aren't great. I mean, the, the variability, I mean, I think my, this work is actually published. You can see huge error bars with PYY and GLP-1. But we did see an effect on weight loss maintenance. So what we had for one of our studies was a nine-week weight loss study where we advised that we help them to lose 5% of their body weight. Then they went away for another nine weeks, basically with no input from us. So it's quite short term, but but hopefully long enough to see some weight regain. And what we found was the group that were on the fermentable carbohydrate called inulin continued to lose weight during the weight maintenance period. There was some animal data at the time that we wrote the studies that suggested that a lot of fermentable carb can help uh, reduce liver fat and reduce um, ectopic fat. And we did see a reduction in liver fat with the inulin group after controlling for weight loss, but they were quite small numbers. And the weight loss intervention that you used was just a sort of standard low calorie? Standard standard low yeah. calorie, yeah. So the, the, the goal with that was to make sure everyone was losing 5%. And what was the calorie restriction? It was individualized based uh, on the patient, yeah. So you would do a assessment of their basal metabolic rate? Yes, close. 
in my opinion, that's a great way to do it if you're really controlling them. Even with that, basically, we had to get them in about every two weeks, every three weeks. So even if you do that, so yes, we, we estimated their energy requirements. Then we go from tailored dietary advice. But in practice, if anyone is trying this at home, that doesn't work because people always kind of go slightly off. So you have to bring people in and, and weigh them frequently. Did people in your study actually lose weight? Yeah. They did. So we did quite well. Yeah. So, so the mean weight loss was 5%. There was someone who lost seven and maybe someone who lost three. You always see that. Um, but, but that was pretty good. The real finding we thought was that if, because if you think that fiber by increasing endogenous appetite hormones or endogenous full hormones is kind of a natural way to control appetite. So you would think that would be a natural, hopefully effortless way to um, promote weight loss. So that, that was the finding we had. But interestingly, in patients with prediabetes, we were expecting glucose to lower. And we didn't see that. We saw a statistically significant postprandial rise in glucose with the fermentable carbohydrate in our prediabetes patients. So what do you make of that? <laughs> so some colleagues of mine have kind of continued this work ever since I left um, Imperial. But what was kind of interesting is we saw a reduction in liver fat. But what they find, and they've kind of followed that up, is that patients who already have naffled get an increase in liver fat with the same intervention. So something is going on. So, so one of the reasons why we think fermentable carbohydrate might help um, with ectopic fat deposition is via the effects of the short chain fatty acids. So whether it's acetate changing fat oxidation pathways, uh, whether it's uh, propionate that might be changing particularly uh, liver me metabolism, evidently, the effect of short-chain fatty acids on liver metabolism differ based on your current metabolic status. Got it. But but it, it, it's one of those really surprising things because you think, oh, but it's a fibre, of course it's going to lower glucose. And it wasn't clinically significant, but it was statistically significant and the error bars were actually pretty small. So to me, it looked like a real effect. It didn't look like it was variation in the assay, for example. But these are all, this, they lost weight. Oh no! So, so this was this, this was not the weight loss study. This was another isocaloric study ah, that we it. did. Yeah, okay, that was it. just six got weeks it. long. Okay, got it. The people who lost weight had an improvement in their glucose. Of course, yes, they did. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, all right. So then you finish this. You go do a postdoc, similar, still in gut hormones, still thinking about GLP one. Yeah. 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 And then was there an idea there that you'd go on and do some your you'd start you know your own academic program or? Um, <laughs> it was it was much much tougher than I thought, and actually it still is. So while I was at Imperial, so the, there's a guy there, the guy who was the head of the department is a guy called Steve Bloom, who's an incredible scientist. So he was one of the most published scientists uh, in in the world at the time. Um, and they were very keen for me to apply for an MRC fellowship to kind of continue some work there. But as some of the stories about my uh, childhood indicate, I've always been really independent. And I've never liked the idea of standing behind someone else. So had I applied for a fellowship with them, maybe I would have gotten it. But it wouldn't have been me that got it. It wouldn't have been my ideas. And not only I think would I find that really unsatisfying, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Like based on all of the reading I did around pre-diabetes. So at the time, this was after the US diabetes prevention trial had come out, but pre-diabetes wasn't really hugely on the radar in the UK. So I was really the only person in the UK doing it. And I was like, oh, I want to continue this work. And at the time when when I was looking at some analysis of all the PhD work, 
And based on a lot of the work that Ralph DeFronzo and others have done, it became very clear that pre-diabetes is, is two very different phenotypes. And so one of my ideas was to have a, a research program that explored that. So I did get a grant to look at that, which is um, still ongoing. And, and so that that was kind of my goal is I want to apply for grants under my own name that I've written and designed and, you know, just kind of test my ideas. Um, and I got really lucky with a post that came up in Kings where that was going to be the goal that I had. Um, and I put together lots and lots of grants and they all got rejected because all I really wanted to do was physiological research. And I, I, I guess you experienced the same things here is to do really good nutrition research is expensive. I had no interest whatsoever in doing a 12 week randomized control trial measuring glucose. Like, what does that tell you? Doesn't tell you anything about ectopic fat. Doesn't tell you about muscle metabolism. It doesn't tell you anything about beta cell function. It's just, I mean, it's just pointless. And so to do those insightful studies, you need to do clamps, you need to do MRS, and they cost like £700,000. Like you can't write, in my view, half decent mechanistic nutrition study in type 2 diabetes for less than £700,000. That's an interesting point. And I I actually, um, I'm not as quick to dismiss the real world studies because I I actually think... Oh, sure. Clinically, they're valuable, but... I kind of questioned, so for a lot of the things I was thinking about, there, there's not much that hasn't been done. Like if I was thinking about, so for example, one of my interests is looking at the difference in the rate of weight loss on what happens with underlying metabolism. And, it, and since I, I wrote some of those earlier grants, there's been even more data published. Like so the, the, the direct study that showed that a large amount of waste, uh, weight loss can improve um, the first phase insulin response. There's actually papers in the literature showing Short term, even if you only lose two kilograms, if you do so via a massive energy deficit, you appear to get some of the, the same benefits. And so a huge interest of mine is saying, okay, what then if we aimed for modest weight loss? So if you're thinking about all of those hormonal adaptations to, to weight loss, if you just aim for say six, seven, eight percent rather than the 15 percent could be more feasible. You might reduce the chance that you get these really marked, um, hormonal responses. But if you do so quickly, maybe you get the restoration in some of the pathophysiology, right? But when I'm talking about those kind of studies is if you measured glucose after you did that intervention, it wouldn't tell you anything because of course glucose is low because you're in an energy deficit. Whereas to measure what's going on underneath, you would need to measure. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. And then so with the finish this, just, let's just finish your story. So you were, uh, where did we leave this? Oh, okay. So, so, so I joined Kings in 2015. Okay. Yeah. So, so I was at Imperial between 2010 and 2015. I joined Kings in 2015 and basically taught all the diabetes. And I really enjoyed that, um, to the med students, undergrad, postgrads, but I just couldn't get research off the ground. And so I ended up quitting <laughs> and moving to Kuwait. And the reason I did that is it was totally normal. It's totally normal. The reason I did that was because of I wanted to do the studies that we talked about. And so I knew of the chief medical officer in the Dasman Diabetes Institute who said that they had hired um Mohammed Abdelghani, who works with Ralph Fronzo, and they're going to start doing clamps and isotopes and all that. They have functional MRI, MRI all under one roof. It's a diabetes institute, which is also a hospital and clinic. So all of the patients are there. Like if you think about um, you do interventional studies. Recruiting patients is hard. That's the hardest part of any clinical trial ever. Yet they're right there under one roof. So it was the perfect fit for me to go do. And so that's what I was, I was doing full time pretty much from January to June this year, setting up our protocols. We're about to finish one study. We've started two others, which is a really nice thing to have in the background. 
And you'll probably know this as well. Like when you're an undergrad or so when you're like a PhD student or a postdoc, you're the hands. So you can't do anything else. You've got to be the one recruiting the patient, meeting them, centrifuging the samples, like you name it, you do it. And it's great because you learn, but that really limits how many studies you can run and how productive you are. And what's great about being at DDI, that's the Desmond Diabetes Institute, is everyone does that for me. So I kind of design the protocols because all of the staff are doing many of these studies as part of normal clinical care. It's just a really productive way to do research. So that's been terrific. Um, so I now work between London and Kuwait. Um, so I moved back to London uh, in June 2019, so a couple of months ago. And I have a post at the University of Westminster where we're doing a lot of NAFLD research. So they have a background. They do a lot of the biobank um, imaging at the University of Westminster. So they have a background in... Um, and an interest in ectopic fat, particularly NAFLD. So we're setting up and putting together some studies to look at dietary interventions on liver fat. If you've ever listened to other episodes of Best Known Method, you will certainly have heard of a condition called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD. As it sounds, it's a liver condition that looks under the microscope just like alcoholic hepatitis. But it occurs in people who don't drink. It's what I call the liver manifestation of metabolic disease. It's the liver version of type 2 diabetes, obesity, and insulin resistance. If you ever saw the movie Supersize Me, you'll also know that Morgan Spurlock developed full-fledged NAFLD after eating McDonald's exclusively for one month. It also happens to be a widely prevalent disease with perhaps up to 100 million people affected now worldwide. It is now also the number one reason for liver transplantation in the world. Do you see liver fat as basically a surrogate for for? metabolic dysfunction. Some people call it the liver manifestation of the metabolic syndrome. Um, yes, I do. Yeah. I don't think anyone's clear yet whether it's a, a cause or a, a consequence or probably a bit of both. But yes, it's certainly central to everything that goes wrong with metabolism in, yeah, in type 2 and everything. We have, we, have, I mean, we have examples from mouse models where we think it's probably uh, as much a consequence as it is a cause. But that's a big area of debate. Okay, so and now, so now you're splitting your time between Kuwait and London, yeah, doing all this stuff. Okay, now some digging on some stuff. So I want to actually ask your opinion first before we get into any specifics about nutrition. Let's. This is a topic of conversation that comes up a lot, which is what's what do we do with nutritional epidemiology? So I want to get your opinion about nutri- nutritional epidemiology because I think it's probably safe to say that the majority of the information that we have about any one nutrition intervention today derives from nutritional epidemiology. Is that fair? In terms of the guidelines, do you mean? So, so the, the guidelines that we have are, are mostly based on epidemiology. Well, I mean, the most of the, tr- most of the data. Do you mean most, most of things, do you mean most things we consider to be nutritional truisms mm. come from epidemiology? Well, how about this? I won't even tell you. You tell me what. I think a lot of the things that we have come from a triangulation of epidemiology and trials where we have them. Um, in my opinion, there's no perfect research study. There's no perfect kind of study design. I think we can talk about animal research, cell-based research, randomized control trials, clinical audit data, epidemiology, and I think it all counts. What you want to do is look at all of it and see how it all fits together. The issue that I see it with epidemiology is that we have far too much confidence in the results that come out of it. And so when we think about stuff that's in the guidelines, the wording that's in the guidelines doesn't acknowledge the 
weak evidence behind it. And in particular, it's not just weak evidence. I think for most of these things, I mean, let's talk about saturated fat and heart disease, for example. I think most of it, the, the direction of that relationship, I think is true based on everything I've seen. But what gets missed is the actual effect size of it. So everyone goes, oh, saturated fat causes heart disease or whatever. And, and at a population level, that is the direction of the relationship. But what's missed is that actually in practice, it doesn't make an enormous difference for lots of people. And so when you read the guidelines, you would think, you know, it almost seems gospel. And when people take that individually, probably for lots of people, it doesn't make that much of a difference. I think the other frustrating part for the public is that there seems to be, and maybe this is the fault of the press as much as anything else, it seems to be that on a weekly basis, take your nutrition element choice, you know, an egg or a cup of coffee or green tea or whatever it is, that they're conflicting results basically every other week. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a huge issue is the type one error, that you churn a data set a gazillion times and, and by chance you're going to find things that are positively related. I think that's the huge concern. And a lack of preset outcomes. I, I completely agree. Um, and for lots of things, I don't know why they're still running these <laughs> Right. Running these studies. Well, you do know why, because it's a great it's, way for somebody to get a grant. And, hey, and, yeah. and you, you know what? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Not, I mean, not just a grant, but publications. Right. And unfortunately, that's the system we work in. Like, I had my probation, which I failed at King's. And actually, my publication record's not bad. But had I had a Lancet, and epidemiology gets in the Lancet, or a diabetologia, there was a meta-analysis of observational studies on dietary fibre on type 2 that got into diabetologia. That's not novel. So, so my PhD work actually, where we had interventional trials using a novel, I guess, kind of carbohydrate. We had ectopic fat. We were doing OGTTEs and meal tolerance tests. We were using CGM at the time. I and mean, it was, it was fairly mechanistic, it got rejected from diabetologia because it was incremental. And then you have this fiber study, like fiber prevents type two, like no shit. It gets into diabetologia and, and, and it sucks, but that's the pressure we're all under. You have to get publications. So, like, I'm not surprised people do it. But but for, for a lot of the things, I don't know why they're still churning out this data. Where there is, though, a real advance in epi nutritional epidemiology is the use of biomarkers. And so this has been of real interest. And they've, some biomarkers have, have gone back some time, like linoleic acid and some of the omega-3 fatty acids. So basically a biomarker is... Uh, typically like a fatty acid in the blood that loosely, imperfectly reflects dietary intake. So rather than just saying, how much oily fish do you have a week? You actually have some kind of an objective measure of whether that person's had oily fish. So that's really helpful because then you can, again, match that up with the self-reported data and see, okay, does it look like these people were actually having lots of oily fish and relate that to some outcome? And so that's been an advance that people are working on a lot of biomarkers. For example, there's a lot for, for dairy now. And I think that really changed the game because previously you were just asking how much milk or yogurt do you have? And actually now you can measure whether or not that person's been having however much they've been having. So it's, it's imperfect, but that kind of stuff is going to improve nutritional epidemiology. But I think what people miss is the fact that nutritional epidemiology is the only way we can answer lots of questions. So, for example, I mean, cancer is not my area. And actually, I think a lot of the epi around cancer is weak. But if we had good biomarkers and if those studies could be done for lots of things, that could only be done observationally. Why? 
Like if you had a randomised control trial, if cancer develops over 10, 15 years, you're going to need an RCT. And we can talk about some of the long-term RCTs that would have a large number of people because if your outcome of interest only occurs in a tiny minority of oh, people... Oh, so you're talking about prevention. Okay. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah, prevention, absolutely, yeah. Um, so, so setting those up is so challenging to do. Some people would say we should be more ambitious and try, but the, the numbers you would need to recruit would be extraordinary. You would have to make sure everyone stuck to the diet. If, for example, you were looking at what might prevent a cancer, what do people get excited about? Low carb. A ketogenic diet. Yeah. You would have to have people follow that over 15 years, probably. Yeah. And But look at the year-long studies. Look at the reported carbohydrate intake on year-long studies in low carb, the randomized yeah. trials. People the, say, I'm going to have less than 50 grams. And at the end of year one, they're having 180 grams a day. So how are you going to interpret that data? So that, that's one of the problems. And so one of the quite useful things about epidemiology with all of its limitations is that you can also compare very, very low intake to very, very high intake. So if you look at some of the randomized control trials, so DART is one of them. DART was a study that looked at secondary prevention. So men who'd had, had a, a heart attack, they looked at the effect. I think it was on a subsequent heart attack. They had three different dietary interventions. One was high fiber. They were aiming for 18 grams of fiber a day. One was a low fat. So they were aiming for less than 35% fat. And one was two servings of oily fish. So it was like 200 to 400 grams of oily fish a day. And what they achieved with the fibre, and this was a two-year-long study, they had 15 grams in the intervention group and nine grams in the control group. So it's statistically significant, but that's not going to make a difference. If we look at the the trials we now have in fibre, you are not going to see a difference between nine and 15 grams on lots of things. So what you can do with epidemiology, you can look at the people who are having none, five grams, compared to the people who are having 60. And the problem with nutrition, because nutrition is not supra-physiological, is that you do need large differences in intake to see any impact on an outcome marker. Like whether whether that then therefore means that it's pointless and meaningless for most people, I mean, that's another question. But I think that that's an uh, important point because I think when you look at the flaws of nutritional epidemiology, one of the biggest ones is the quality of the data you're getting in terms of recall, which is pretty abominable. At least that's what I'm told is that people don't do a very good job of remembering what they ate yesterday, let alone a couple of weeks ago. So I guess that's one flaw. So, so I'm going to jump in there and just, and, and this, right. this is why nutritional epidemiology is not perfect and it's not absolutely awful. I, I would tend towards the latter, but there are certain things that people do with their diets for many people that are consistent. And it's those things you can ask about. So you're absolutely right. Like if you were going to say, what did you have in your sandwich two weeks ago? Most people aren't going to remember. But most people, if you said, oh, in your kitchen, you know, what oil do you cook in? For most people, like most people don't have avocado oil, nut oil, sunflower, canola, rapeseed, olive oil lined up. Most people have one or two. So for most people, stuff like that is something quite consistent that they can report on. The same is true for lots of things like... um sausages, bacon, fish is another big one because people either tend to eat a lot of it if they do and they remember that because it's a huge part of the diet or they don't. So you can compare those two groups. So it's not absolutely useless and people, I think, are very black and white about these things. But that's where it differs between interventional trials because you can actually look at large differences and the impact of those large differences on a marker over 15 years. But that's the key point that you can now begin to measure markers to yeah. to somewhat validate what you someone's telling you, right? To be able yeah. to say, because I remember in Predimed they had used markers. I think they were using like urinary and stool markers. They were, for, yeah. and and that was pretty 
Nice. I mean, oh, it was terrific. Yeah, because yeah, I think that really saved that study because, I mean, again, we, let's talk about randomised control trials. So people are like, oh, we just need to scrap nutritional epidemiology. Everything should be a large-scale randomised control trial. Like I've described DART, they didn't get any difference in the fat intake. It was like 35% of calories from fat versus 31, not big enough to see a difference. With the fibre, like I said, it's 15 grams versus 9 but if you look at PrediMed, they wanted to compare two Mediterranean diets to a control diet that was low fat. And guess what? The control diet wasn't low fat. They had 16% of their calories from olive oil in the, in the, low, the American Heart Association low fat diet. Why was that? Because they did it in Spain. So you can tell people in the advice they had, they were given recipes, menus, encouraged to have low fat versions of everything to not use olive oil. But it's Spain, that's what people do. So this is the challenge of having an RCT. And so, but what was wonderful about PrediMed is because they had those markers of nut intake and extra virgin olive oil, then what that tells us, you know, actually this effect on cardiovascular disease is not about monounsaturated fat versus saturated. This is about the polyphenols. This is about the non-nutritive factors in nuts and extra virgin olive oil. And they were able to do that because they collected those biomarkers. But that was they were lucky in the sense that they had biomarkers for those two things. So nuts and extra virgin olive oil, they could measure those things. So wait, you don't think it was the fats? No. Really? No, this is what everyone gets wrong. No. I've gotten it wrong for years. Why? I mean, so if you look at, so in the supplementary data, there's these beautiful tables, tables that those, show you yeah. all the difference, right? So there's 9% of fat, 9% of calories from saturated fat across all groups in the... Mediterranean diet, I think they went from 39% of calories from fat, overall fat, to 41. It went from 39 to 37 in the control group. So the, the statistically significant difference, yes, that's not enough to make any difference. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So you're not saying that you don't believe that there's a potential benefit of monounsaturated fatty acids in a diet. You're just saying that they didn't actually have a difference in that study. Yeah, I, I don't think any of the, I don't think the effect in that study was due to the monounsaturated fat because, again, the, the difference was two percentage points. And what we know from studies like CANWU and RISC that have had large changes in saturated fat and, and MUFAs, you don't see those differences. So PrediMed is not about fatty, fatty acid class. It's about the non-nutritive compounds. Oh, I got that. I've been getting that wrong. That, but I could, you know, one of my favorite sayings. What? If I got 10 pounds for every cardiologist who thinks PrediMed tested a low-fat diet, I could pay for the federal No, I didn't think it tested a low-fat diet. What I thought it was it tested. <laughs> Sorry. I've always told people that it tests the difference between adding fat in the form of extra virgin olive oil or nuts to is not it, have. To but it's extra virgin olive oil versus olive oil. That's the difference. I didn't realize that yeah. that was the difference. So, okay. that, so again, that one of the tables yeah. is, so one of the tick boxes for is someone eating a Mediterranean diet is do they have four tablespoons or more a day of, I think it was extra virgin olive oil. Which is a lot. Yeah. But there's something like 60% of the control group said yes. Okay. Because that because they're in Spain. Yeah. Um, what about the nuts? Um, but because the nuts were given to the that group, so they were given 30 grams a day, that was the difference between the two groups. So again, if you look at the reported intake of extra virgin olive oil, that's the thing that differs. Olive oil doesn't differ. Sorry, I think I said that wrong before. It's the four tablespoons of olive oil. That was the aim for the Mediterranean diet. So the control group were doing that. But the difference is in the extra virgin olive oil. Got it. Because what was great about that study, again, is they gave people a litre of the extra virgin olive oil a week to ensure that one interventional group had that and the other one had 30 grams of nuts to ensure that the other intervention group. So those were the differences. Got it. And actually there is an amazing editorial. So when it came out in 2013, Linda Van Hall, 
Linda Van Horn and Lawrence Apple wrote a brilliant editorial on it. The title of it was, Did Pred-Med Test a Mediterranean Diet? Yeah. And it basically said the control group is essentially Mediterranean light. Right. And if you think about it, I think that's really exciting because then it, what it means is these magical components of really delicious foods have amazing benefits. Yeah. Rather than, you know, like worrying about saturated fat or mono, etc. Like it. that's a nice story. I agree. And a nice message for patients. I agree. Um, all right. Let's come back to David Unwin because that sounds like a really interesting thread that we can explore a little bit. Tell me, tell me who David Unwin is and why he's interesting. Okay. So D- David Unwin is a GP. Um, in a place called Stockport in the UK. So Stockport is quite um, a challenging area. So he's, he, he works in a GP practice that's, that's probably pretty challenging anyway. Um, it's also worth mentioning most GP practices in, in the UK are incredibly challenging places to work. So we have a, a government for the last... Like nine, nine years who've been terrible, basically cut loads of funding, all the social care and stuff. So GPs essentially have to be um, dealing with people with addictions, people with depression, obviously, uh, people with diabetes, you name it, they deal with it. And so it's a challenging enough job literally just to be a GP. And so basically David Unwin's story is that he was seeing a rise like every other GP in type 2 diabetes, like an astonishing rise because he's been a GP 40 years maybe. Um, and just got really worried about it and, and noticed how much money they were spending on diabetes drugs and was struggling with something to do about it. And I think what happened was he had a patient who came back to see him who'd lost weight, was able to reduce their medications. And he was like, what are you doing? And the patient said, oh, I'm on a low carbohydrate diet. So I think he adopted this diet himself and gradually they started introducing this diet into their practice and got anecdotally great results. And then so they started trying to formalise it a bit more. Like I think they have group sessions with a very simple dietary intervention we can talk about in a sec, which is basically reducing starches and sugars. And what's been really great is that he's actually been publishing some of that work. And so initially people were super sceptical about it. Like, what are you doing? Low carb, blah, blah, blah. And actually a lot of the conventional bodies were not embracing what he was doing at all, but he really, really kept at it. And I think he has nearly half of his patients with type 2 diabetes in his practice into remission. And that's extraordinary because because he's not a dietitian. His full-time job is not doing this. This is something that they have in this practice. And I think they've saved something like £50,000 in diabetes drugs. So before we get into the details of what he's doing and how he's doing it, so he started doing this how long ago? Oh, God, I think probably seven or eight years ago, I think. Okay. Yeah. And it was literally because somebody came in and told him what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, that somebody said, I've had all this success doing this. And he said, that sounds interesting. He tried it himself. Yeah. That's that's okay. how I understand the story. Yeah. And so what else? Tell me a little bit more about the intervention. So it's just cutting out all the refined carbohydrates. Oh, basically starches. So this is why I think, and whenever I give talks about why I think low carb is really useful for type 2 diabetes, particularly in primary care is thinking about my research experience with helping those patients to lose weight. Because if you want to get a calorie reduction without changing the macros, you know, you're not eliminating one food group, what that then means is everything they're eating has to reduce slightly. And so that's quite complicated advice to give because then what you're saying is, oh, well, when you normally have that bit of steak that's maybe five ounces, make it three. And when you're having that rice rather than five tablespoons, make it three. Um, Vegetables, 
these ones are fine, but these ones have calories in. Think about your cooking oil when you're having two tablespoons, make it one. Then think about your alcohol in all of that. Like it's lots and lots of stages of advice. And if you think about, so when I was a dietitian, I had half an hour with a patient, but you think about a GP has 10 minutes. They can't go through all that. And I think one of the reasons why low carb has been really effective for GPs is that you basically say, cut out the starches. So basically by starchy food, I think this is a term we use in Britain more, you're basically saying bread, rice, potatoes, pasta and cereals. Cut out those. And what about pastries and sugar and well that naturally that that naturally gets yeah. removed so i think that's that's again one of the nice things about low carb is if you just consider okay can't have carb and i've removed the starches so pasties the stuff that we have pizzas out burgers are out like the junk food is out because it's always coming with chips or it's coming with bread or something like that so you haven't got to spend time explaining what not to eat it kind of f- solves itself now i always like to say that nutrition is unique in that it's and maybe in this case, that's the point as you're trying to cut calories. And so you're cutting calories out of that category, but it feels like it's pretty zero sum to me. So that is, it feels like if you're going to cut one macro that you're basically going to increase another. So so it, I think it depends on how much a person is eating already. So where people have looked at it, it looks like mostly there is a, a, a large energy, de- energy deficit. So you're not compensating completely the cutting of the carbs with an increase in other macros necessarily. There's not complete compensation. But if you think about the advice that you're giving in primary care, you maybe see them every six weeks. So this is what some of my colleagues do, which is an extraordinary amount of time. So if I were to ever design a weight loss program, I would want to see them back in two weeks. Like most of the data shows this. You have to see people frequently. And so Peter Foley is another of GP who does low carb in his practice. And I've kind of said to him, how often do you see patients and he said, they come back in six weeks. I was like, how does that even work? And I think it's because it gives you a starting point. So if a patient, if all a patient is doing is cutting the starches, they've already helped themselves. And then when they come back, they might say, oh, I'm hungry. I'm missing this. And then you tweak stuff. So you say, right, here's a list of healthy fats. Feel free to go crazy cooking with olive oil in your vegetables, add loads of cheese. And these are not, these people are not measuring ketones or any other. No, no. And so he's now publishing his result. This is obviously not a randomized trial, but he's publishing these as case series. Yeah. I mean, so so the title of, I think, the first uh, paper he published was something like Experiences with a Low-Carbohydrate Intervention in Primary Practice, which kind of does what it says on the tin. And at the time when it came out, like a lot of people were really dismissive of it. Oh, it's not a randomized control trial. It doesn't show anything. And I think this really misses the point with clinical nutrition. Ultimately, you want to help your patients. So yes, a randomized control trial and and proper study designs are important for really isolate or answering a research question and isolating a particular variable. But in clinical practice, who cares? Right. This came up a lot with the Verda trial because it wasn't randomized and there was a lot of pushback on that. And I think, you know, my point was, look, if you're self-selecting people, so what? They're still getting ridiculously good success. I mean, the numbers well, yeah. are... Yeah. So, so here's the thing. Like, Verta can't tell us whether it was carbohydrate reduction that got those results because there's no control group. And David Unwin's work can't say, well, low carb works better than another diet because because there was no control group. But wh- where I think Verta and David and others' work is really, really important is it's shown what can be achieved. And that's huge for patients with type 2 diabetes. Because we know what it should be, right? We, we know what his, his, historically it looks like. Absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, like when I was a dietitian back in 2007 to 2010, never occurred to me that 
part of my job should be could be helping people come off their medications. Like one thing that we tried to do was to mitigate the continuing rise in insulin dose that you have in patients on type 2. So we tried to do that, but we never tried to go backwards and reverse anything. So that's what's been so important. It's been an earthquake through type 2 diabetes clinical management and for patients with type 2. And the direct trial was also absolutely huge in this. But six years ago in South London, no one had heard of remission. Now, all of my GP colleagues, every day they have a patient coming through, how can I come off my medications? How can I do it? When Roy Taylor published one of his earlier papers, not even direct, looking at reversal of type 2 diabetes, this was 2013, and it was published in the Daily Mail, which is kind of a terrible newspaper, but it's a very popular newspaper. They were so inundated with people emailing them, the research team, that they had to develop a website with all of the resources of how to do it. And then so many people then emailed them back and said, I've done it, here's my A1C, that they published a research paper on it. And so this is the hunger for for remission. And so this is one. This is why I love what Verta are doing. I love what David's doing. Yes, it's, it can't tell us anything about low carb compared to anything else. But my goodness, it, it can tell you what's possible with low carbohydrate nutrition in remission of type 2. Dr. David Unwin is a general practitioner in England, and he discovered that low-carb diets were helping his patients with type 2 diabetes. So he developed a program for his practice to put these overweight or obese patients with type 2 diabetes on a low-carb diet. And then he collected the data and he published it. It's not gold standard level data, but that doesn't mean it's worthless. What it tells us is that a highly motivated GP can motivate a group of his patients to follow a program and that the program will dramatically improve the management of their diabetes and metabolic disease. And Nicola makes the point that it's worth paying attention to, even if it's not gold standard. Okay, so speaking of hunger, let's go back to the study that you did when you were, I believe, a graduate student, right? This was the... Oh, the PhD, the, my PhD work. Yeah. GLP-1, okay. And yeah. forget the GLP-1. Actually, we can think of, talk about gut hormones too. You can speculate, but I'm just going to ask you a loaded question, which you probably know is coming, which is if you had done, instead of just doing a straight calorie reduction restriction study... If you had done one where you're swapping out carbs for fat, do you think you would have seen a difference? In other words, do you believe, I guess what I'm trying to ask you in a long-winded, stupid way is, do you think there's a effect of these low-carb, high-fat diets on appetite? Um, yes, I do. Um, but I think there are lots of caveats here. So I think, firstly, if you look at all of the RCTs ever done, there there is a trend. So consistently short-term, there is a trend that comes up in all of the meta-analyses that there is a numerical superiority, statistical superiority of low carb over others. But then if you look at what people are actually eating and what they're reporting, not everyone sticks to it. So there's that like, there's that in the sense that you actually have to like the foods because if you don't, it's not going to work. The second thing is I think the degree of carbohydrate restriction is really important here. And lots of the studies, and there have been meta-analyses, these are meta-analyses in type 2, that say we looked at low-carbohydrate diets where carbohydrate was less than 40% of calories. Like 40% of calories isn't low-carb. Like that could be 180 grams um, of carb a day. So, so, And when you look at those, it's not really surprising that you don't see an effect. But probably, I think based on the data that I've seen, if low-carbohydrate diets work, I think it's due to appetite. So just to be clear, I don't think 
there's any effect on energy expenditure. If there is, it's protein. I think that that's what the studies that that have been done have shown. So I don't think it does anything magical, I hate to use that word, on metabolism or, or fat oxidation, net fat oxidation, but I think it's due to appetite. And so that I think there's pretty convincing data that the rise in ghrelin you normally see with weight loss, you don't see when people are on a ketogenic diet. Which is pretty big. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. I mean, th- th- there's several things to bear in mind. So firstly, one of the things that informs my opinion on this is just my clinical practice. So I don't really do much clinical work anymore. I do have a, I do see patients privately, but in my whole 10-year nutrition dietetic career, I've maybe seen eight patients who've lost tons of weight, whether or not they had type 2 or not, but lost tons of weight and kept it off. And three of those have done it with a lots of exercise and a, I guess a regular high-carb diet. And they've done it and they've kept the weight off. But they, even if they don't struggle, they really have to keep on top of things. So they're the kind of people that monitor their behavior religiously. They wear a pedometer every single day. They monitor all of their food intake. They weigh themselves. And it's almost using these external cues to keep them on track. On the other hand, all of the patients who've done it with a low-carb diet, it just seems effortless. And when they talk to you, and this irritates everyone because it is irritating, when people have lost weight on a low-carb diet, they just become religious about it. And I think there's something to that, that all the people I know who've lost loads of weight on a low-carb seem to have done so effortlessly. And that I never feel hungry anymore. I feel great. I've got loads of energy. You know, obviously there's a thing that they like the diet. That's important too. And so that also informs my view of the literature that there's just something about this diet that where it, where people like it, it just seems to have an effect, in my opinion, on appetite. And whether it's via ghrelin, maybe, maybe not. Because the, the thing that's important to bear in mind, I think the, the studies that have looked at ghrelin have been reproduced. So it seems to be an effect that's reproducible in the literature. There's lots of acute and longer term studies that support that too. But let's bear in mind there are lots of different appetite hormones. And a couple of papers show a slight reduction in PYY and GLP-1 with low carb too. So I wouldn't hang my hat on it yet that it's due to ghrelin, but I think it's appetite and I think ghrelin plays a huge role in that. So that's what I think. So I think if they're if low carb is beneficial for weight loss, I think it's likely to do it, be to do with appetite. And I think it's likely ghrelin plays a huge role. Okay. And those are testable. Right. Yeah. Okay. You said something before, I think you've said it a few times about healthy fat. What's healthy fat? A no brainer for healthy fat would be stuff like olive oil, rapeseed oil, stuff that's high in monounsaturated fats. And uh, probably, unfortunately, seed oils, based on the data we have. Actually, I wanted to come back to epidemiology and how it's not perfect, but what you want to do is put all of the data together. And seed oils are a great example of that. Because of the effect on lipids? Because all of the data is pretty consistent in all of the different kinds of study design, supporting what the epidemiology says that seed oils do, for example, for preventing type 2. So let me give you an example. Hold on. Before you do that, can you just tell, say what seed oils are? Oh, like- so, yeah. So seed oils are an umbrella term for sunflower oil, canola oil. Basically, they're the N6 polyunsaturated fats. Okay. So omega-6 polyunsaturated Correct. fats. Okay. Yes. And that means that the 
uh, double bond is at the sixth position, correct? If I remember the biochemistry correct, right? If I'm correct, right, otherwise right. just delete this bit. Okay, good. And the, they have been associated with good outcomes in terms of diabetes? Yes. Okay. So not only for, for cardiovascular disease, but there's a lot of data showing that omega-6 fatty acids or foods that are high in omega-6 fatty acids help prevent type 2. So that's the observational data based on self-reported dietary data. But then because you have a biomarker for N6, you can measure the linoleic acid content of red blood cells in the phospholipid layer in myocytes as well. And all of it's pretty consistent. So there have been a long-term observational study looking at baseline at the phospholipid or the, the PUFA content of skeletal muscle. And it is inversely related to insulin resistance measured by CLAMP, adversely related to type 2 diabetes incidence. There are cross-sectional studies, again, that show an inverse relationship to how much PUFA you have in your in the phospholipid bilayer of skeletal muscle again and insulin resistance measured by CLAMP. Then you have dietary trials that have compared sunflower oil to palm oil or to butter, which show that you get reduced insulin resistance with the PUFA and you get reduced liver fat compared to saturated fat. So all of the evidence put it together is all pretty consistent and supports what we find in in epidemiological research. Okay, so here's a question for you that I have struggled with recently as I start to dig in more on nutrition science. And that is that a lot of these studies are done as replacement studies. So yeah. I guess let's just use the example of replacing saturated fat with seed oils. Yeah, but that's, that's exactly right. So one of the mechanisms by which we think, for example, PUFA might improve peripheral insulin sensitivity is literally displacement that it, display, it displaces certain fatty acids in the bilayer and replaces them with linoleic acid. But I guess my question is, is it the addition of the PUFAs or is it the subtraction of the saturated fats? That is a great question. And a way to answer that is to look at what happens if saturated fats are replaced by monounsaturated fats. Mm-hmm. So two studies have done that. One is that I know of, one is RISC, that had a reduction of about 6 or 7% saturated fat and they increased monounsaturated fat. They measured insulin sensitivity with an IVGTT, so it's not perfect, but they didn't see an effect on insulin sensitivity. Another is the CANWU study that used, I think, clamps, hyperinsulinemic clamps, didn't see an effect at normal levels of fat intake of replacing saturated fat with monounsaturated fat. So you're saying it's not just reducing saturated fat, it was actually something about the, the polyunsaturated Replacing, Yes. Okay. And, and, and again, there's a beautiful paper, this was on not on type 2 diabetes now, but this is on cardiovascular disease, where the, the replacing nutrient is really important. But when PUFA replaces saturated fats, that's where you get the benefits. Okay. So I just asked you what heart healthy is. So what's well, the... What's oh, you didn't heart- say healthy. You said healthy fat. And that, Sorry. You're right. I shouldn't use words like healthy fat because it is really vague and could mean anything. But I mean, it is uh, typically when we're talking about healthy, we're talking about healthy in terms of an endpoint or a disease that we care about, like metabolic disease yeah. or cardiovascular disease. Yeah, but here's the thing. This is really hard to answer in nutrition because while replacing a lot or some of saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat is beneficial, even with monounsaturated fat for some things is also beneficial, it doesn't mean that you have to eliminate other fats completely. There's no, apart from maybe industrial trans fats, I can't think of anything that is per se harmful in nutrition. Everything, even fructose, everyone gets hysterical about fructose. And yes, if you have 
a quarter of your calories from Coca-Cola, if you have 80, 100 grams of fructose a day, that's harmful as far as liver fat insulin resistance is concerned. But most of the studies looking at 30, 40 gram fine. So I wouldn't even say that sugar's bad or unhealthy. <laughs> but it is. But but this is this is the really hard thing. I was having a conversation with someone about public health messaging. And how do you keep it scientifically accurate? Because if you look at the wealth of data, and there's three decades of it at least, of sugar on outcomes, particularly glucose homeostasis, etc., you'd see no detrimental effects, even up to like 10% of your calories from sucrose. Yeah, but there's the... But, but let me finish my point. Uh, but how do you translate that in public health terms? Because you... Oh, you can have, I mean, in the UK now, second, it's less than 5% of your calories should be from free sugars. And I think that accurately reflects the scientific literature. But does that translate into an effective public health message? Because actually, probably, if you said sugar's toxic, not not the education or not that public health messaging per se is enough to change behaviour, but I think that would be a scientifically inaccurate but more effective public health message. Which? Sugar's toxic. Well, Because it's not. I, but I think, okay, so if you want to go down that path, I could say that you could make the same argument about cigarettes. I bet that there's very little evidence that one or two cigarettes a day is toxic or harmful. If you really want to look at the data, I bet that you could, you'd find very scant evidence that it's super bad. But yet you can't give that message as a public health. You can't say... But I think I think what's hard here is that sucrose is found in lots of things, admittedly in very small amounts and things like fruits. Sure. Where do you draw the line? Because you don't need to have a cigarette and you don't need to have fruit. But it's more black and white with cigarettes. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to think in my head why. I don't know. I told my kids once on vacation that I'd rather they smoke cigarettes than have Coke. No. Yeah. It was probably not very smart. Uh, and I don't think they took me seriously. But I think uh, fruit is a great example. I think fruit, you know, I guess everything comes down to what you're trying to optimize for and, you know, what the goals are of whatever it is that you're doing. And um, sometimes it's easier. I do think that sometimes having too many choices is is hard. And, and sometimes it's easier just to completely remove a choice, not have it. I, I completely agree. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why low-carbohydrate diets for a certain kind of person work really well. Because it's like, okay, boom, I can't have carbohydrates. And effectively, I think for lots of people, there's a switch in the brain. Often once they get into the idea, okay, I've got to keep my blood glucose under control because I've got diabetes. Carbohydrate is the major contributor to glucose concentrations. I can't have carb. I think that message for a certain kind of person is super effective. And it's like a switch goes off, boom, I can't touch that anymore. Yeah. But then having said that, I have I also have patients who who repel from that idea. Yeah. It just it freaks them out. Um it almost seems like life's not worth living if they can't have potatoes, that kind of thing. You, you have to work with that. Do you think it freaks them out? Because I have patients now who kind of you know, this has become more mainstream. We're having conversations all the time. Do you think it freaks them out because they're bummed about not being able to have the carbs or because they're worried about having the fat? I think mostly bummed. I mean, the, the conversations I have, and, and I, I have a couple of patients now who've lost tons of weight. We've done it with low carb, but at the very beginning of the journey. So essentially what I do with patients with type 2 is if we're talking about remission, I talk about the data on it and I talk about what direct tells us in whom it might be effective. And I talk about what the diet might look like, the potential risks. I do the same with low carb and I show them what a meal plan might look like and we, we, we let them decide. 
Um, and lots of people with the low carb have kind of said, okay, I'll do that to get the weight loss. But when can I add some carbs back in? And so obviously what I say is, you know, one of the reasons why carb restriction, I think, is effective, a large part of it, is that you just reduce the exogenous carbohydrate. It's a large part of, I think, what it does, in addition to other things. And so for that reason, I kind of say, well, the idea with low carb is that's the dietary pattern you stick to. But for lots of them, they say, well, I can't do that. I'm not interested in doing that. Um, I have dinner with my family. This is how we all like to eat it would really negatively impact on my life if I had to sit there and not have potatoes or rice, et cetera. Sure. Well, and, then they shouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Or you, or you, or you, I mean, so, so low carb, they've found it great to lose weight. And then we, we tweak it and see, okay, what can we introduce to help maintain the weight loss? But you, yeah, you have to personalize it. We're, we probably don't have time to get into all the interesting questions that you and I both have, but I guess one of the other ones that's out there that I think hasn't been answered yet effectively is sort of when it comes to these low carb, high fat diets, What's the role of the diet and what's the role of the effects on biology and specifically ketones and gut hormones and other things? Do you have a sort of quick guess about how much you think of it as just people are less hungry and they're, or do you think there's like other stuff going on? In terms of ketogenic diets and weight loss or, or with just overall changes in me- metabolism and weight loss? Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of things happening. So so I think with type 2, I think, and maybe even if someone hasn't got diabetes, I think having a more flat glucose profile over the course of the day, I think that then impacts on multiple other regulatory systems that probably keep you happier and more stable. And, and, and here's what's really interesting coming back to the insulin point. So I'm pretty sceptical. So when people say this simplified thing that... When you eat carbohydrate, insulin goes up. And since insulin causes fat storage, that's why you gain fat. And you can't lose fat if insulin is high, that kind of thing, which I don't buy at all. And I think there's literature that shows that quite clearly. But where I think the interest is, and I think if you talk to Jim Johnson, he'd say the same thing, is it really is about overall tissue exposure to insulin, particularly fasting insulin. And again, this comes back to not just low carb, but how low are we going? Because I don't think you see huge differences or significant differences in fasting insulin until you go really low. So again, it might be one of those things that low carb doesn't necessarily reduce appetite. You have to go low enough to get ketones to do so. And similarly, you're not going to get this reduction in insulin again, unless you go really low. I think Steve Finney would say that. Yeah. I bet he would say that. Yeah. I don't know if you saw, this is a little bit off topic, but I don't know if you saw, there's this uh, cardiologist in Philadelphia, or cardiology fellow, I guess, in Philadelphia. Have you seen it? She's a vegan. And she um, she's like all plugged in with the whole plant-based thing. Oh, with the surgeon? No, she's not a surgeon. She's a... Ve- so she's there's a, a vegan type 1 and she's an... Or- yeah, that's she's different. Or- that's oh, Karen. okay. Well, Carrie, Carrie. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't Danielle. know the other one. Danielle oh, okay. is a cardiology fellow and she's been like a whole uh, strong advocate for, you know, whole food plant-based diets. Yeah. High carb, low fat, the Ornish thing. Yeah. And I guess... Carrie convinced her to try a vegan keto diet for the past couple of weeks. And so she's been sort of live tweeting her results. And it's interesting. uh, She's not going to do it long term because she likes the lifestyle that she had before, but it was kind of fun that she tried it. And I think it was interesting that it kind of maybe put a little bit of a thaw or maybe that's the wrong word. It made the relationship between these two groups of people who tend to hate each other better for a little bit. Like it was kind of fun that there were all these people who normally would be resenting each other. But there were two things that I took away from her experience that were interesting. One was she reported, and obviously it's just self-report and it's anecdotal, but this is coming from somebody who's skeptical of this whole thing, this 
high-fat, low-carb diet, she reported a dramatic decrease in appetite. And she said she was she had trouble eating enough. She tried actually, she didn't want to lose weight because she wanted to make it, you know, an experiment where she was neutral on weight, but she couldn't help it. She ended up losing two pounds. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and then the, she just yesterday published her lipids, which I thought were interesting because they didn't really change. I thought that was also interesting. But yeah, but I, I guess if she has a really healthy diet in the background anyway, her lipids are going to be pretty good. Yeah. And if she's her having LDL a healthy... Was 45. Wow. Yeah. But if she's, and if she's having a, a heavily plant-based, super high-fiber, high-fat diet, and I presume most of the fat is also from mono and pufa. Yeah. It's like not surprising. Well, at all. so the other thing, sorry, the last thing that I take away from it that she took away from it was was the amount of fiber that she was eating every day. Mm-hmm. Do, and she was able to do this and she was in ketosis. She was measuring her ketones. So she knew she was in ketosis and she was eating an enormous amount of fiber. So I guess I didn't realize that there are all these sources of fiber that are relatively high in fat. Like there are these beans that these guys love called lupini beans, which are, yeah, have you ever heard of them? I ha- uh, yes, but I think we call them something different in the UK. I don't know. I'd never heard of them before three weeks ago, but apparently they're incredibly high in fat and they're also very high in fiber. So they're like, I guess the myth is you, you have av- to be, Avocados is another good one. Yeah. Like high avoc- fat and high yeah, fiber. Right. Yeah. And there are plenty of options, but I guess that's one of the myths is that if you're going to do one of these diets, you have to be, you know, no fiber, or just low fiber. I think that's actually not true. I think you can have plenty of fiber. And how did some of the more militant members of our low carb community respond to her experiment? I think they liked it. I think the mil- the pretty interesting response she got was from the militant uh, people on the other side. Oh, yeah, the vegans. Yeah. And I didn't realize, because <laughs> I don't hang out in those circles, I didn't realize that they can be equally militant oh. and vicious. And oh, they were really bad, hard on her. Yeah. Like really hard on her. But that gets to, you know, something that we could talk about for 50 years, which is the stupid tribalism and all this stuff. But yeah. um, anything else that you want to talk about before we go have dinner? I think it's a good place to stop. All right. Well, we can always do it again. It's a good excuse for you to come here. Maybe I'll come to London. And we yeah. can come out and hang out in my private club. Oh, I love it. Okay, good. All right. Nicola Guess is the first dietitian we had on Best Known Method. She is also the first nutritionist. And now we know what the difference is. She has a wide range of experiences from the most clinical to research attempting to understand fundamental questions in nutrition science. She is fiercely non-tribal and devoted to the science. She rejects dogma and loves it when we get things wrong. Her explanation of how she believes the Predimed study on the Mediterranean diet was really a study looking at the beneficial effects of some as yet unknown chemical in olive oil or nuts, and not a study of the Mediterranean diet, was fantastic. She aspires to do the most rigorous and well-controlled studies, but she does not reject the rest. She has a healthy appreciation for what we can learn from epidemiology and also embraces what we've learned from real-world practitioners like David Onwin. In sum, she is the human embodiment of best-known method, at least in terms of nutrition science. She's also humble, funny, witty, and honestly self-deprecating. These are my favorite qualities in people, and that is best-known method.